the access to it in a conversation starter with Upneak, mm-hmm. how would you even start a conversation when you were when you were investigating it in the trial? Like, how would that conversation start? Well, I mean, so with patients, we had to identify them based on uh, their lid position, and you know, they had to meet very very uh, strict criteria during that time, but. Um, so with those people, it was just kind of like, Hey, we're doing this trial. You know, you might be a good candidate. You might not even get, you know, the active ingredient. So those, those people, you know, obviously knew it pretty quickly if they didn't get the active ingredient and had the placebo. But, um, you know, now that since we've done the trial and I've been doing some, um, a little bit of consulting, uh, with the company and knew that it was coming out, I started identifying more and more and more people in my chair that were, you know, maybe they had very mild, uh, mild to moderate ptosis, nothing that would even be medically necessary for any kind of surgical intervention. But people that come in, I, I get people all the time that go, my lids, they're super droopy, you know, and yeah. I'm looking at, I'm going, Hey, that's, that's not going to, you're not, you're not going to qualify for anything. Um, but now that we're able to offer them this, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. I think it's going to really change the way we manage it, but I, I've been able to identify, you know, probably of the people that I have diagnosed with ptosis in my EMR, there's probably for every one, there's probably another four or five that yeah. truly have ptosis, but we've never documented it because there's nothing we can do about it. Right. Do you think that, that um, like how would you, I know this would be off label because it is for ptosis, but um, how many of those patients with like dramatic cholesis uh, would you be considering like at least a trial of this to see if it benefits them? Right. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's because of the safety profile, it's worth a try. Uh, with some of the patients, depending on how the dermatocolasis is, I do feel it would almost work like a, like a blind, a window blind a little bit. Like you yeah. pull that lid up and the, the skin's <laughs> just going to fall over even more. Um, but I think some could benefit, you know, and the, the great thing about it is we can give them a trial. We can give them a sample in the office. They can try it right there in the office, see the effects within five to 10 minutes and know whether this is right for them or not. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, I just can't think of any other, um, any other treatment we have that is so instantaneous that the patient's going to see the full effects right away. Hello, and welcome to the Griswold Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I had a great conversation with Dr. Shane Foster about purchasing a practice, being a, an associate, growing with the existing practice owners, and then purchasing the practice in small portions and then in total from them, and how he now is uh, purchased another practice and how he's incorporating his associate into both practices. I think it was a really fun conversation. Please enjoy it. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I have to admit that with eight kids, it's a real challenge for my wife and I to minimize our environmental footprint. You should see the corner of our driveway every Tuesday morning when recycling and trash is picked up. One of the things I can control is who I partner with. Sustainability is something that matters to us and to our patients, and Cooper Vision is committed to it. From executives to plant employees at Cooper Vision, their commitment to sustainable practices is clear. Check out the show links to see how others are incorporating their commitment to sustainabilities in their practice. What's your What's your ultimate goal? Are you going to take over the world or what's going on? <laughs> well, at least maybe southeastern Ohio. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the problem with a uh, rural community. They're, you know, it's not as... Uh, not as attractive to, to new grads or you know people wanting to relocate 
you know, a, a, a rural impoverished area is not uh, at the top of people's list. Can so, you describe southeastern Ohio for me? Because in my mind, you know, obviously, it's just like if, if, you, if I said Nebraska, most people think like maybe Omaha, maybe, right? So can right. you describe southeastern Ohio and kind of the community that you serve? Yeah, so uh, we're, we're about a little over an hour away from Columbus, southeast of Columbus. So Columbus being the capital, you know, lots going on there. And that's where, um, you know, the Ohio State University College of Optometry is, of course. So uh, rural Ohio, southeastern Ohio is part of Appalachia. So, you know, if you think about the Appalachian region, it's a, you know, kind of known as an impoverished area, um, kind of mountainous. We're not quite in the mountains, but we've got what they call the rolling hills. Uh, so beautiful scenery, um, beautiful outdoor space uh, to go hiking and, and backpacking and things like that, but um, also a lot of poverty. So I, it, it's not really densely populated. So, you know, people might have to drive 45 minutes or an hour to get to their nearest eye doctor. So it's just, and so how quickly does it get from Columbus to like foothills of Appalachia? Like how, how fast do you, does that happen? So probably about 30 minutes out from Columbus, you start hitting some of the, where it's less flat and you start getting some terrain. So, um, and then, you know, we're only about a half hour from West Virginia. So, you know, 20, 30 miles from West Virginia where you really start getting into the mountains. Yeah. And um, in terms of, uh, so it's interesting because it's not, that's not how I think about Ohio, obviously, right. because I'm not from that area. Are you, you from Ohio? Yeah, I'm from Athens, actually. So I okay. grew up here. I was a patient of the Quinn's. Uh, when I was growing up. And then, um, so then obviously then why, I mean, an hour to me seems like, I mean, granted, I practice in Omaha. I always say if I didn't have a practice to come back to, I would have probably stayed in rural Oklahoma or certainly rural Nebraska. Um, but how does an hour outside of Columbus, Ohio seem rural to a lot of people? Uh, well, I think because the, the, when you start to get outside, it very quickly becomes very rural. There aren't a lot of, um, you know, Columbus is kind of a city of suburbs. So when you get outside of that outer belt where the suburbs and you pretty quickly get into like farmland and like I said, those rolling hills. So I think that um, you know, there's not really any other major cities in this part of the state. So Athens is probably the next, you know, large-ish city you run into and we're only about you know 25 to 30,000 people so uh, it's it's just the dichotomy of having this very large population center and then you know essentially nothing so we're kind of in the middle of nowhere and you and you practice with the Quins for how long before you decided to, to purchase the practice so I started with them in 2008 right after graduation and um, I had worked with them as a technician and like I said had been a patient of theirs for a long time so I knew them very well uh, but we started as an associateship of course you know I didn't buy right into the practice uh, we always described it as we've got to date one another before we realize if we or decide if we want to get married and so and it's very much what it was like we got to got to know one another on a business level too you know I knew them personally but uh, it was just getting to know them a little bit better in their their practice model so I was with them for about four years before we started the buy-in process. Did we, uh, so did you, um, do you feel like you learned a lot about business from them or did you have perspective on business before or, or like maybe not even, I mean, obviously you'd learn a lot about business, but 
do you feel like you learned a lot about your business philosophy from them? Or did you have your own perspectives before you came on that you had to kind of meet your minds together with? Yeah. So I, you know, it was a, a little bit of both. I mean, they didn't, they always told me we didn't get any business education in optometry school, which was very true at the time they were providing basically nothing. Uh, when I went through school, we had, you know, business courses every single year and a large seminar in our final year to, to know how to run a business and, you know, all the logistics of buying a practice and profit and loss and that kind of thing. So we, we learned quite a bit. So it was nice that we could offer something to one another. So, uh, you know, I knew their practice philosophy and their business model at being an employee of theirs as a technician. So I got to see how they ran the business and how they were pretty transparent and open with the employees and with the associates. So, I mean, I was, my opinion counted like that of an owner from day one. You know, they asked, we went to purchase an OCT and my vote got as much weight as the owners did. So that was, um, you know, kind of a, a, a nice thing to walk into and realize that my expertise and knowledge was valued just as much as theirs. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, that's uh, that's super important. I mean, you're you're kind of mirroring a different experience because it's it's not with your folks, but you know um, that was you know I think we you graduated in 2008, so I think we graduated mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to hear that it, that was the perspective that really had you buy, get ownership in the practice. I mean, not just financial ownership, but but actual ownership of of the practice is kind of the same thing that that I experienced. Was you know look, uh, we respect we're not just going to pay lip service to, to Chris and what he wants to do, but we're really going to uh, listen to what he has to say. And then also like give it weight. Uh, I think that was, that's really helpful in terms of practice transitions, um, which obviously you've, you've seen. Well, so then when you you started, said four years, you started purchasing into the practice and then um, kind of tell, kind of lay that process out. Was it always like, you know, they're going to be done at this time or how did that work? So, no, it came in. Um, really, we were very open and uh, they, they kind of told me that up front. We don't know how long we want to practice. We don't know when we're planning for retirement. And, you know, 2008, I think, threw a bit of a wrench into their retirement plans anyway. So uh, I think maybe they had planned for a little bit sooner than that, but obviously when the economy tanked, they really had to rethink that. Um, and they wanted to make sure it was a great transition. So they didn't want, you know, someone coming in and they didn't want to throw them the keys and, and leave. They wanted to make sure that whoever took over was set up for success. And so that's, you know, one thing we've, we had always talked about from the beginning is we want to make sure everybody's comfortable with this. You know, we want to be open communication. We want to make sure that uh, each individual involved in this transaction feels like it's the right thing to do. So, you know, as we got, we actually, I bought in as a, as a third owner. So there were three of us. It was, you know, me, Tom and Susan. And, uh, you know, there were definitely some warnings to me from colleagues or other people of, do you really want to like, do you want to join in with the husband and wife team? That seems like the two of them might gang up on you. And I said, well, I know them better than that, but also, yeah, the two of them are going to gang up on me at times, but also Susan and I would gang up on Tom and me and Tom would gang up on Susan, depending on what the decision was. So, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely, um, you know, there was a mutual respect and understanding there at all times. And I think that was what was instrumental in making it as smooth as it was. 
did you guys, uh, did you feel like there were any, so then you, you bought in as a third owner and then at what time, was it a year ago or so that you, or mm -hmm. two years that you bought the, the last, I guess the last 66% of the, of the business from them? Yeah. So I, that's when I did a full buyout it was about a year and a half ago, but um, actually three years after I came in as a 33% owner, I kind of looked at the tasks I was taking on and, you know, how they were kind of stepping back a bit and, you know, just looked at the days that we worked and they were each working two days a week. I was working four days a week and I started looking at the math and thought, well, that sounds like 50, 25, 25 to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, the administrative stuff was about the same. So I approached them at that point about becoming a 50% owner of the practice and, it was, you know, there was a little bit of negotiating there about how would that actually work and how would that look. But, uh, you know, they both agreed it was like the right thing to do. So making a stair step approach to it made it a lot easier to take that last big bite. Right. You know, rather than going from 33 to 100, I get to go from 33 to 50 to 100. Yeah. And I think it helped a lot financially, too. Did you, um, did you finance the whole thing? I mean, you probably, you know, that I've, I've had Mick on the podcast a couple of times sure. and um, and so that's another thing I think that's scary. You and I are from a little different generation in terms of student loans, I suspect, than right. a lot of new students. I mean, did, do you know who Travis Hornsby is? No. He, uh, he, is the, he, he calls himself the student loan planner, and he basically is a financial advisor for professional students. And what he does is he figures out, like, uh, he really has an, a great understanding of, okay, this, these are the rules for forgiveness on student loans. So he basically helps professionals who have astronomical student loans and helps them figure out like, okay, this is, this is how you reduce that student loan burden on a monthly uh, payment scale so that after 10 or 20, 15 or 20 years, it just, everything else gets forgiven. So your mm -hmm. whole goal is to reduce the amount that you have to pay back, which is really interesting. And, and um, so I've had him on the podcast before and he was talking about, I think I want to say that he said the average that he works with, which is it's escalated because people aren't going to seek him out if they have no loans. Right. But he said the average debt of OD that he works with has like, I want to say 197,000 in student loans, but it might've been even like in the two hundreds. But anyway, um, so it's a different time, yeah. but it's scary for people because like you and I might've come out with, with half that or even less right. um, just 12 years ago but it's scary for people. So how do you get over the, first of all, I guess my, my original question was, how did you find Did you finance it? Did you, are they financing it? Did you go to a bank? How did you go to those, those percentages and, and pay for it? Yeah. So that um, when I first bought in, you know, Tom and Susan had worked with a consultant, a practice consultant and kind of um, knew that they wanted to bring on a partner and, tried to find out the best way to do that. And certainly owner financing was, was kind of part of the deal at that point. Uh, you know, I was young and naive and thought, gosh, I, I can't afford this. You know, it, it was terrifying at the time. But when we laid out all those numbers with the consultants and looked at how much I was bringing in this, uh, as an associate, how much would I bring in as an owner? And here's the payment that I need to make. And it made it very clear that I could afford this. So I think just having all those numbers there ready to go, it was really helpful to, to know, okay, I can do this. And it wasn't so scary. I mean, certainly, yeah, it's still that added debt that you know that you're, you're going to owe in the long run. But 
uh, it showed me in the immediate future how I was going to be able to, to manage that. Um, and then, you know, Tom and Susan being able to finance that, it was, it was a little reassuring too that if, if the practice did fall on hard times or I, you know, had some kind of injury or something, you know, that they would be, um, willing and able to give me some, some leeway. So that's what I did for the first, you know, three or four years when I was a third partner. And then, um, I did my homework when I approached them about doing the 50%, um, uh, ownership and I went to an outside, uh, lender and, and got the loan for that. Got a pre-approval before I even approached them because right. I just wanted to have my ducks in a row. So, uh, that's the way I did it at that point. And then actually ended up going with a totally separate lender when I did the hundred percent buyout for various reasons, uh, just interest rates and, and that kind of thing. Did you do, so then, um, did you have, did you like on that first 30%, did you pay that off first? And then by the next 20%, I mean, 33 and a third, right? And then, and then by the next 17% or so, uh, pay that off and then go, or did you just say, look, this is the next time, this is the next time, this is the next time. Yeah. I, you know, I, obviously that probably was the smart, would have been the smart thing to do would be pay it all off before you take on additional debt. But no, it was more about the timing. Uh, not about how much debt was still there. So I refinanced it each time in, you know, lumped it into the, to the next purchase price. And it was, uh, you know, it, it still, you had to make sure that the numbers worked out and every time it did. So it, it yeah. made sense to, to proceed. And did, um, are they still working at all now? They no, so they worked, for, they worked for me about six months after, uh, I bought the practice and then they, that was kind of their, transition time out. So we didn't make any big changes in, you know, the practice name or, or the flow or anything like that, just kind of slowly um, transition things over. So it, it worked out really well. I mean, initially we were, I think all a little bit nervous about how that would look, you know, that they are no longer owners, but they're still working in the practice, but it was, it was perfect. It was perfect timing. Yeah. And, and then did you have to bring on an associate to basically replace the, the uh, revenue and patients that they were seeing? Yeah. So I brought on, uh, they were at the end, we're only working about a day, day and a half a week each. So I only had to replace two to three days of, of patient care. So it was, uh, we brought on somebody part-time at first and she was a new grad, but she had been an extern in our practice. So she already knew the practice. We already knew her. It was a really, really easy hiring decision because there was basically no interview. We had already done a three month long interview when she was rotating through the practice. Right. And, and now does she also, so this new practice that you bought, is she going to service that, that patient population as well? Was that part of the, the picture? Is she on a path where she wants to be a, an owner at some point? What's, what's going on there? Yeah, so I have, um, we had, when, when the Quins were still involved, we had um, an, an associate at that time too. Uh, so now there's two associates and then myself as the owner. And so when when the pandemic hit we well you know we were doing stay at homes for six weeks or so and uh when we reopened we knew that we wouldn't be able to go to full capacity just from a safety uh standpoint so i did have to cut all the doctors uh, all the doctors hours and uh, reduced it by um two to three doctor days each week so the the, the three doctors have kind of been not working as much, but it's is been that great because we have case a, right now. It still is for yeah. for the time being until we open the new the new practice. But 
we uh, we also don't have student loans to pay right now. So we've all been kind of fortunate that we it, it worked out well that we were able to defer that or you know just forgive the student loan payments at this point. Uh, but that wasn't the the impetus for opening this other location, but it certainly was uh, one of the deciding factors was that I was going to be able to, in the short term, be able to honor my commitment to those associates, you know, and allow them to work the amount of days that I had promised them. So, you know, that that was that was tough when I had to, I mean, had to tell them that I can't give you the same number of days that you had before. Uh, that was tough. So it was nice to be able to say, hey, we have we have something to give you. We can give you some extra days in this other location. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to work out great. I think we're going to be able to make sure we maintain a safe, orderly patient flow, but still give everybody the, the time and the hours that they need. How much less uh, are, are you seeing patients? Like how many, I guess, what was your flow before COVID? What's been your flow in terms of time allotment per patient? Yeah, so we didn't really, um, when we first started back, we really spaced patients out. And then we, within the first week or two, we realized we were sitting around, you know, yeah. doing nothing in between patients. So yeah. we, we pretty quickly went back to almost our normal schedule pre-COVID. But we had um, some days that had three doctors in the practice, and those were chaotic, crazy days anyway. And we just knew we couldn't do that. So we cut back to only having two doctors in the yeah. practice at once. So uh, there were two days that we did that, and now we're only doing a half day on Fridays, really, to just give everybody a break and um, make sure we have adequate staffing. So we, uh, we're about 75 to 80% of our pre-COVID capacity. Are you, and, and, and I would imagine that your, your uh, pre-COVID capacity, like you're right now having to kind of push patients out a little bit in terms of yeah. when they're going to schedule. How have they been responding? Well, it's mixed. You know, we, we definitely get some patients that are kind of shocked by, um, you know, it, our practice, again, being in a rural area where there's not a lot of care, we were already scheduling four to six weeks out right. um, for, for most people. And so at the beginning, it was kind of, it stayed right about that. Um, we are now, I just checked our first opening is um, early November. So we're mm -hmm. about eight weeks out which is just it, not sustainable, you know, right. from my perspective. Right. And people always say, Hey, that's a, that's a great problem. No, um, no. but it, it might that's be not. a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. Yep. And uh, we need a place to put these people because they're, I mean, they will go elsewhere. There's, there's not a lot, not a lot of other places to go around here, but uh, we've heard from some of our colleagues, you know, even in Columbus in some of the retail places that they're, leaving um, our private practice and, you know, going to a lens crafters because they can't get in to us quickly right. enough. So, you know, they want to support us and support local and small business, but they just, they can't because they have a need. How do you, so then how do you, um, you, you know, that's, that is, I think an interesting problem that we don't, most people don't view as a problem, but I totally mm -hmm. agree with you. I think it, it is, it is a problem to not be able to get patients at least some access the the challenge then is how do you make sure that your you are and your staff are feeling safe the patients are protected um, and then be able to ramp back up what are your plans for that so I don't know yet <laughs> you know I, we I think we've we've maxed out where we feel safe and comfortable um, people have mentioned okay well 
we can extend the days a little bit. Maybe we can do evenings. We can work weekends. You know, the, we're we're in an area too where weekends are are a little more sacred. And don't uh, do you it. Know, yeah. Don't work weekends. It's it, you know we did we 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 were open like uh, one to two Saturdays a month, and we cut that back when all this hit because we just knew we needed to. Um, we had to give our people a break a little bit yeah. too. And people have more flexibility now. Almost everybody in this area is working from home because our major employer is Ohio University. And almost all of their staff and faculty have been you know, advised to work from home if they can. So people have a lot more flexibility and they're able to come in during the workday. So we've, we pretty much have continued to delay um, adding Saturdays back in for the time being. I think, you know, I mean, obviously that would, that would be a solution to a portion of a solution to the, the problem that you have. But, you know, I, I think one of the perspectives I have is, is all of this is, has let me step back or forced me to step back and, and kind of reprioritize the practice that I want to, to have and mm-hmm. looked at in a lot, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, yeah, this is the practice that I wanted, but then are there things that we're doing now that don't serve that ultimate goal for, you know, patient care primarily? Or, um, or then, then the ability for us to have the practice that we want, you know, that we, that we want to develop and, and, and cultivate. And so um, I think that's, it's a good opportunity for you to be able to say, well, is it, do we want to have a practice where people have to work Saturdays, not just the doctors, but, um, but your staff. And, um, and, you know, I think the other thing, and I've said this before, you you may have heard me say this even in, in different webinars and those sorts of things, but I think the beauty of telehealth, and I think it's here to stay. I think it's, it, it is here to stay. Most of my patients don't want to have telehealth. Primarily, they want to be seen physically if they can be. But I, I do think telehealth allows us to be comfortable extending ourselves in a 24-hour capability for urgencies and emergencies. And just that, that alone, because in the past, it was I either have to just take a phone call and triage it on a phone call and be comfortable that I'm going to see the patient in a day or in two days, mm-hmm. or I got to meet him in the office, right? At midnight or whatever. And now with telehealth, you really can, can feel comfortable and confident that I can be on the, I can be on uh, 24 hours a day and know when, when we're having a conversation like this, I can see Shane, are you in a lot of pain? Are you really concerned about what's going on? You know, you can you can kind of get a better sense because you get that third dimension of of feedback right. from a patient. Are you guys doing much of that? Uh, not anymore, but we we definitely did. You know, when we were under stay at home orders and things like that, we uh, it was a great way to uh, offer you know just the service just as you um, explained it that we can feel a little bit better by physically seeing somebody and uh, you know. Again, we're, you're limited on what you can see sure. through a, through an iPhone or something like that, but um, it, it gives you a little bit more peace of mind than just taking a message or talking to somebody on the phone. So uh, we we used it for uh, those six weeks or so, and again, not a ton of people because there were some that we would you know we'd still bring people in if we needed to. We were open the whole time for in person emergency care as well, um, but it it's tough because it's not something that we were used to. So we have to remember that that's something that we can offer our patients. Um, I mean, where I found it really beneficial was, uh, you know, they opened up the the codes that you can use, um, right. especially, you know, under Medicare for just like a check-in or something like that. 
and uh, I don't know how many times during those stay at homes that I would have to discuss with somebody, you know, their dry eye regimen or their glaucoma regimen. And I'd look down and realize I've been on the phone with them for 15 or 20 minutes. And that's a significant portion of your day. So to be able to bill for that um, was, was pretty remarkable. You know, hopefully those things will, will stick around for a while, but, you know, we'll have to see. Well, I think it also lends itself to even this idea of like our, our patients who have diabetes and they have, you know, diabetes education coordinators yeah. where there, there's studies that show that those patients are better, more adherent to their medication regimens if they have uh, somebody coaching them along. And, and so, you know, a lot of this is if you have a patient with glaucoma or a patient with macular degeneration or a patient with ocular surface disease, and you're able to just, you, they don't need to be in the practice for you to make, be able to make decisions, but you can say, look, we're going to check in on you in a month, make sure that you don't have any questions or, you know, how many times is some, you know, restasis or Zydra burn, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you tell a patient that that's going to happen, but, you know, it might be three, six weeks before you're going to see them back. And now all of a sudden if they, they have the potential to come back and like, ah, it just didn't work for me. It's like, okay, now we're starting from ground zero as opposed right. to being able to check in. And, and monitor that. So I think, I think that is probably here to stay. We just need to remember that, that that's an option for us. You know, it's yeah. hard to remember that. Um, so then when, when you think about bringing people back on that third day, when you guys were busy in the practice on the third day where, or on that day where there were three doctors there, um, is there any opportunity to, uh, space people out and still have patients coming through or it, it's just physically the, the plant that you have will not support uh, the distancing that you want to achieve or the, the safety measures you want to achieve. Yeah. I mean, it's really the building that we're in was built in uh, specifically for this practice uh, in the early nineties. So, I mean, that's um, definitely pre EHR and um, almost, pre-computer. So, I mean, uh, the testing room, I think initially had maybe a manual keratometer and like a Goldman bowl in it when it first started out. And now we've got an OCT, we've got a field machine, we've got an Oculus keratograph, we've, you know, all this technology has just exploded and um, really limited um, our, our space. So, you know, some of our diagnostic testing equipment, we even moved off to the side so that we could allow more spacing um, in between patients in the testing room. So it's really just the, the physical plant is really just not, not enough to sustain that. We were kind of running ragged on those three doctor days anyway. Um, but it allowed us to get more patients through and right. it allowed us to, to keep the associates busy and, uh, it worked. You know, people would put their heads down and get through the three doctor days, but it just wasn't ideal. So, you know, even if we could build a, uh, you know, a, a second story or something, you know, it's still just uh, limitations of parking and things like that. So, you know, I'm certainly, even though I'm, yes, opening another practice right now, I'm even looking at, okay, what, what kind of physical space do we need for the main office? What, what are our needs going to be in the future? And it doesn't look like uh, we're downsizing at all. Does that second practice uh, have the ability to absorb some of the patients that where you could say, Hey, 20 miles away or whatever, how far away is it? Yeah, it's about uh, 20 miles. Yeah. So 20 miles away, uh, we can see you right over here sooner yeah. or there, or you're, you're out, you're out a while there too. So I, uh, you know, I thought that it would uh, give us a little more flexibility, but it turns out it's booked up almost as far, <sighs> not quite. 
Um, but, you know, we open officially on the 14th, so in, in a week and a half. And we are booked out uh, four weeks beyond that start date already. So it's, uh, again, good problem to have, problem. right? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it'll, I think it'll absorb some of the patients that were used to traveling to Athens. You know, they'll, they'll now go to the practice in Logan. But I think we really it just opened the door to a whole lot more patients, which, again, I, I, I'm excited. I want people to be able to get the care that they need and to have options. So, you know, it, we're accepting different insurance plans at different at the different offices, too. So that will allow people to who weren't be able to or who weren't able to be served in our main location. We're taking some different managed care plans that they might be able to uh, take advantage of in, in the other office. Yeah. Well, I mean, was there a specific reason that you that you decided to do that? Was it to grow, or was it to just um, offer options to other patients, or what was your what was your? Because I'm imagining that, you know, with the Quins, you guys didn't have to take that much, that many right. uh, managed care plans, but this one you decided to do that. So, is that the primary reason? Yeah. So, it, you know, in the main the main office, we've only taken uh, one vision plan. Um, for the history of the practice that I, that I can remember even as a patient there. Um, we've only taken VSP because uh, Ohio University's vision plan is VSP. So, it, you know, it's kind of one of those things you you do it because it's, it's there. Um, and our patients will will go elsewhere if we don't take it. So, uh, but IMED's not big here, Davis, any of those are really not, not as apparent. But in the other office, you know, he, the previous doctor who's re- who's retiring, he took um, only vision plans. He mm. didn't do any medical. Mm. So it's a whole different world for us trying to figure out, okay, you know, I can build VSP all day long, but I don't know how to do IMED. I don't know how to do Superior or Davis or any of these. So, um, and the, his staff has no idea how to build medical. So that's going to be a learning curve too, but it's going to allow us to offer a lot more, um, to his patients who were used to paying out of pocket. And now, you know, they're going to be able to be billed to medical. So I, I, I didn't want to take less than what they were used to. So I felt like it was um, a service to the patients that are there and who remain loyal to the practice that will still take all the vision plans that the previous owner did. And I just thought that was the right thing to do for those patients because I don't want them to be, have their doctor retire and then be displaced because right. we don't take their, their vision plan anymore. Right. Because, well, you know, patients so, who came to our main location that said, wow, I really wish you'd take IMED. Well, now you have an option. I know it's a little bit of a drive, but it's the same doctors. It's the same practice philosophy. It's just 20 miles down the road. And people in this area are used to driving. And we already have a ton of patients who have scheduled in the other location because of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a, yeah, a great option. And, and what I wonder if you're going to find in this new location is, if because the patients have been so kind of, um, you know, I always say that you reap what you sow in terms of, of your practice philosophy. And so you, you do train, my dad says this all the time is you're training, you're training your patients on what, what to expect from your practice. And, um, and so I wonder how much of a challenge it's going to be to, you know, have the conversations with some of those patients that may not have been getting charged for a medical evaluation or may not be getting charged appropriately. Have you seen any of that yet? Are you anticipating it? Do you have a, a plan to deal with it? Yeah, so we, um, we've we heard a little bit of it, but people saying, well, you know, what's it going to be? What's the cost going to be? It's probably going to be more expensive. You know, they're just anticipating that. 
it's so funny we're only 20 miles away and Athens is not a, a, a big city, but to the people in this other community, it does seem big. So they're saying, okay, these people are coming from this larger city and they're going to bring new technology and they're a little nervous about cost. So it is going to be a little bit of scripting and, you know, people have already called in and said, how much is it going to be for an eye exam? And, you know, the staff there says, how do we answer that? Well, you don't give them a number, first of all. You know, you say, you know, our exam involves a vision test and it involves a, a comprehensive health assessment of your eyes. So it's, it's letting them know what they're getting for that cost, too. Um, but then also saying, hey, we didn't take Medicare before. Now we can bill your exam to Medicare. Or we can bill it to, you know, your Blue Cross Blue Shield, whatever it may be, that they didn't even have that option before. So most of the people who are used to paying out of pocket probably could have their exam billed somewhere and that they just weren't able to do it previously. So that's where I've tried to educate the staff that it's not when someone says, how much does your exam cost? It means, why should I come to you and why should I bring my service or my my business to you? Yeah. And, and, um, it sounds to me like you've got that, that very, that approach of your answer really solid in your mind. And what I always find is that practices that do that well and describe it well, it's everybody is comfortable answering that question throughout the Mm -hmm. entire practice, explaining the difference between why we might bill medical for you today versus your, your managed vision care plan. Everybody understands that philosophy as a practice where practices sort of fall and they'll revert back to kind of what they did is that they, it's not just sort of a practice culture thing, right? People, there, there's some people that think this way, some people that think that way. And, and I don't, I wouldn't even blame it on the fact that, that uh, the owner doesn't explain it well. It's just that it takes sort of this mantra over time, mm-hmm. years and years and years of, of basically cultivating what patients are going to expect. Look, we're yep. going to see patients back for, an ocular service evaluation and we're going to, we're do all these other tests and we're going to dive deep into that and not oh come back. If, if you want to come back or come back, right. if it's still bothering you, it's, we're going to follow you. We're going to do these things and we're going to make sure this is better so that it doesn't become a bigger problem for you in the future. And I think that that philosophy um, is so important to, mm-hmm. and, 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 and it doesn't happen the first year and we're a lot of docs and I don't think, and I know you won't be scared of this, but, a lot of docs will start down that path and then they get a little resistance either from patients or staff or both. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it's like, well, that's too much work. We're just going to do like we used to. Yeah. So do you find that any of your associates were have a hard time with that when they first come in or, or do they fully embrace it right out of school? How did you learn to do that? So, well, it's, it's interesting because I think our, uh, the one associate I have had done retail optometry before, um, or like a boutique optical. So, um, you know, going into private practice was kind of a, uh, a whole new thing for her anyway. So she was really excited and wanted to learn all the little nuances of it. And um, so that wasn't really, it, it wasn't a problem there. Um, she just kind of said, hey, I've never really done this before. So I'm we were the model for her. Um, for our other associate, she was an extern in the practice. So she, she knew everything already and how we like to present things to patients and what our mantras were. And, uh, you know, was very happy to, you know, I, I think it, if she didn't agree with it or didn't like it, she wouldn't have joined us in the first place. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right about getting everybody involved. You know, all the docs have to be on board. Um, all the staff has to be on board with, um, you know, what our protocols are. And when you get that, I, I think you can, you can have one bad apple <laughs> that can really bring yeah. the chain down and say, oh, well, we don't really need to do that. You know, uh, yeah, we can let that slide. And I, I think those are the people that um, don't stay long in the practice because, uh, usually because everybody else is against them, you know, yeah. I mean, um, I think we come as a pretty unified front, you know, if a, um, if a staff member is taking flack from a patient, I come to their defense because, you know, they're doing the right thing. Even if it's, I don't agree with it in the moment. Um, it's almost like co-parenting, you know, you've got to, you've got to be on a unified front and then, okay, now we can discuss this later, you know, when the patient's not around. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important to just make sure the whole office as a family knows what the answers are to those questions. And so that's why I had um, the staff from my new office, they're training in my main office right now. So they are doing all of their training there. They're learning all of the same systems so that, you know, our doctors feel comfortable from one location to another. You know, even if the staff doesn't go back and forth, our doctors are going to, and we want to make sure that we um, have the same experience and that we provide the same experience in both locations. When you're looking, I'll be respectful of your time. Um, sure. When you're looking for new associates, what, because um, to kind of bring this full circle, one of the things you said was it's kind of challenging to find people who want to be in, in rural, uh, rural part of the United States. Mm-hmm. What do you find about your practice and practices that is appealing and how are you going to use that to, to kind of continue to draw in new, new associates to those practices if you need them. Yeah. Well, and you know, at the rate that, you know, looking at our books and looking at the rate we're growing, it's, it's yeah. you know, probably not too far in the future that we'll, we'll need to have another associate. So, I mean, certainly number one is the externship programs, you know, with, with Ohio state having students rotate through essentially, like we said, they're doing a working interview for three to four months. So that's been invaluable. Uh, you know, even if we, we got one, but you know, even if we don't get, um, another one for a while, at least they see what the practice is like and they know what to look for when they're looking for, uh, for a position as well. Um, the other thing would be, um, you know, all of our doctors are very involved with our state, um, association and with the AOA. So when you get that kind of, um, Again, that kind of mantra in the practice that, hey, we're, we give back to the profession. That's what we do in this practice. And if you want to be a part of it, we want you to do that too. So, you know, I, I'm on the board of the Ohio Optometric Association and volunteer for the AOA. Um, our uh, newest associate is our young OD committee coordinator for our region. And um, we have our zone governor for the, um, the Ohio Optometric Association too, and our other associate. So, everybody's really involved. And I think those kind of connections really help uh, recruit new talent too. And then uh, we're also a vision source practice and vision source, uh, you know, that kind of network that we're able to have all across the country is, is wonderful to, you know, if somebody's moving from our area to another area, we're able to um, kind of make those connections, whether it be a staff or another a doctor. Um, I had a previous associate reach out to me. Um, gosh, just a uh, few months ago, and she was moving to Atlanta, Georgia. And you know, she said, 
I don't know if you know anybody there. And I said, well, I, I don't know anybody personally who's practicing there, but like, let's look at the vision source network and see if we can find an office that may be looking for somebody. So uh, that I think that's been a, a great resource too. So I think just our involvement in the profession really um, keeps those doors and windows open so that we uh, have communication lines with people, you know, in other parts of the state and even other parts of the country. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I completely agree with you from a standpoint of, of um, when you have those lines of communications open. And I think you're right completely about, about vision source. You have these other brains to pick people that have gotten lots of experience from really smart people mm-hmm. where they're, they're just a email or a phone call away. And um, I think there's a lot of value in that. There's a ton of value in that. And uh, the, the, the docs that I see struggle tend to be on an island. You know, mm-hmm. they, they tend to be where they, they say, you know, I'm just going to do this. This is my job or, or whatever. Um, and, and in general, it seems like they're not quite as happy when you talk to them. They're not quite as engaged in, in associations and, you know, they're sort of distant. And um, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I know there's probably people that really love what they do and, and they just keep to themselves probably. But, mm-hmm. um, but it is such a small profession. And, uh, and having a network and multiple, you know, within your state association. And, you know, you brought up vision source from a vision source standpoint. I think that's really great um, where you can bounce ideas off of other people and work toward a common goal, which is elevating the, the care we can provide our patients right. and changing the perspective of the type of care that, that can be obtained through our offices. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, Shane, thanks for being on. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having uh, me. This was a lot of fun to talk through, and uh, and hopefully we'll be able to see each other sometime, you know, face to face at a right. meeting one of these days.